1: Welcome back to Podside, everyone. Uh, this is Carlo, and uh, today, folks, uh, I am flying solo. Apparently, there was some sort of mishap with um, with uh, Pete, and uh, something happened to our, um, our, our our fellowship, if you will, and we split up into different directions. And so, I'm going to be doing this solo, uh, but I am joined by none other than Aaron from the Hit Factory.
0: Uh, hi, Aaron. Hello, Carlo. Great to be here. Um, sad to hear of the the breaking of our fellowship and the departure of Pete, but uh, alas, well, we, uh, we amble hope, on.
1: Yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I haven't heard much, but hopefully, you know, it's not a Boromir situation and we'll be hearing from him again. Um, <laughs> otherwise, his cloven horn will reach us uh, over the falls of Rauros and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And as if that's not hint enough, and you haven't read the title to this pod side, you just came into it cold. We are going to be discussing the Two Towers uh, film, uh, yet another Peter Jackson special. Uh, So get ready, folks, because this one starts off with a bang. I would say it starts off with uh, it realizes that, um, yeah, you should play the hits, (laughs) even if it's replaying them somewhat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it gets Um, right into it, doesn't it?
1: Yeah yeah. I mean honestly I remember sitting in the theater and like when they do that slow pan across the mountainside and you you'd faintly hear like the 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 dialogue from the the Bridge of doom I mean uh, and then it swoops in through like a tunnel and you get straight into this, the scene where the, the Balrog versus Gandalf on the bridge is happening. And you're like, Oh, Oh, and then you get the extended scene. Yeah. Where, you know, uh, Gandalf, after telling the, the the party to fly, you fools, uh, you know, just like, uh, excuse me, I will be being a wizard now. Um, I'm just going to fall gracefully, pick up my sword along the way and just wail on this fucking piece <laughs> of shit Balrog on the way down. Um, honestly, really, really impressive, really gets you right into it. Uh, I don't know about you, but like after seeing that Balrog where it falls into that gigantic cavern and it just has like these real, like the image itself is really evokes like this uh, Milton-esque type of the fall of Satan from heaven type of feeling from mm-hmm. it, you know? uh you know you're ready you're ready for this movie to begin and you know obviously this is like a uh, some weird dream sequence where you know frodo wakes up ah, gandalf um <laughs> and of course they are stuck in the and Mule, the series of rocky uh hills that are litter the, the the their path between you know uh what is it the anduin where they the we last saw them uh well, where they last had uh, been accompanied by, you know, the the rest of the party and whatnot and, and Mordor. And so, you know, of course we have Sam there saying, you know, sort of placing us in the scene going like, ah, Mordor, this is the one place we don't want to go to. and It's the one place we can't get to. Mm-hmm. So uh, did you want to uh, talk a little bit? Because this, uh, I, I did want to point out that, um, Perhaps wisely, Peter Jackson and is it Fran Walsh? I yeah, forget. Uh, Fran, Fran Walsh, and, Walsh Philippa. and
0: Philippa Boyens. And there's one more writer credited on this one, and, and his name escapes me, but it's, it's Stephen something. But he's, he's in addition to this one that wasn't credited uh, mm. on the fellowship. So somewhere along the way, he had some, some input in the script. Um, gotcha. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't. I can't remember his name now. What? What was it? If um, only we had a Stephen s- Sinclair. Stephen Sinclair uh, is his okay. name.
1: I was just going to say, if we only had some sort of te- technology, like maybe I a know. palantir, <laughs> to look this up. Um, but yeah, uh, honestly, I think that this is one of these immediate uh, signals to anyone who is like who's read the books that the movies are proceeding very differently than the books because Mm -hmm. basically, and I don't want to get too far into like, Oh, the books versus the movies and whatnot, because honestly we'll be doing the books and that'll have their own thing. But, um, in, in the structure of the books, uh, we get basically the next scene and the entirety of that until the, the battle at Helm's deep all in book one, uh, and then we get what we're talking about right now where it's Sam and Frodo making their sort of wending their way through the the hills and through close getting closer and closer to Mordor uh, all in book 2 um whereas here the movie perhaps wisely has decided to sort of uh, collate both both of those books together yeah. in scenes that uh that let you sort of uh, what do you call it? Um, sort of linearly go from mm-hmm. you know one point to another in time. Yeah, uh,
0: it does a you know it it. One of the things that I was remarking on this time around watching it, you know, with with my partner and and my my, my viewing partner here uh, was that uh, it it they do a really good job of like finessing the story into something that that hits all of the beats properly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you read it in the book, and, and again, like, I know we don't want to get too much into it, but it is, I think, one of the the, the biggest strong points of this one specifically. I don't know that that I, I would say the same about uh, Return of the King. You know, obviously, The Fellowship follows the book, like, almost to a T, with the exception of omitting a couple of specific characters and, and situations and, and kind of condensing things a little bit. But mm-hmm. this one, like, uh, is the first one of the films, like, you know, having read the books where... You, you actually get to see a little bit of that craftsmanship in terms of the storytelling and see them really like kind of like graft scenes together and, and move things around temporally and, and also make it just like build in, in a more traditional kind of three or even like five act structure. And it is something to behold, like, because it's, it's a lot that they're doing here, you know? Um, yeah. And, and thinking about too, like, you know, the, the Battle of Helm's Deep, you know, being important, obviously, and being kind of at the climax of, as you said, that, that first book, uh, but really being like a chapter that runs, what, like 12, 15 pages and then yeah. extending out the, the drama of that conflict into the entire like final hour of the film. It's it's very impressive. Yes.
1: I mean, and, and I would say that here they actually um, added stuff. It's funny because you mentioned that in Fellowship they omitted stuff, but here they add stuff to uh, sort of, I guess, make. Certain things make sense to perhaps uh, dramatize certain other parts and uh, so I, I mean we can we can get it get to that uh, as as we sort of move through the film itself. Um, but I do think that they 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 do a pretty good job of uh, sort of explaining uh, more on a on the ground level um, you know what this what this would look like, right? Because you get that scene where, uh, what is it? Uh, poor Eothane and uh, Freyda being sent off on a horse to to by their mom, right? As you know, the hillmen are invading and burning down the town or whatever their little village or whatever, uh, and you know, uh, you know. I'm afraid I complain. like, Oh, shouldn't ride him. He's too big. Uh, but which is, which is a funny, but very touching because the, as soon as her mom puts her on the horse, she just, her face crumples and you're like, mm-hmm. Oh, poor kid. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the things uh, that
0: I feel like the film does. I don't know. I, I, it's going to sound like I'm taking umbrage with this, but I also think that it's important for the movie to do this, where we're we're thrown and kind of cast in this movie into like an entirely new por- part of of Middle Earth, into a conflict with a bunch of characters who thus far we haven't met, um, mm-hmm. and and a ton of new you know faces are are added into the, you know, kind of into the lineup here that we're supposed to care about, and the the film and, and Jackson, you know, spend a lot of time focusing on as you said, those kind of like on the ground, like very familial kind of connections like that with a lot of children like that, the montage is leading up to like the battle at the end. There's so many like little blonde babies that they're like mm-hmm. showing just like covered in dirt and scared, like hiding in catacombs because they they need us to like feel a little bit. And and I don't know, you know, this is one of the things where I I understand why. And I think it's kind of necessary just given how, quickly we have to move in in the film and how dense the the subject matter is but also sort of feels like kind of a an emotional shorthand to try to get us to care you know and try to kind of like elicit that emotion from us yes yes i i,
1: I think i agree with you and i i think um we had been sort of talking a little bit beforehand and uh in general um and uh, I, I may have made the mistake of rereading the book before watching the movie <laughs> and to a certain extent um in the movie itself it, it to what you're you know to to respond to what you're saying i felt that there's a lot of these beats where it feels like they're trying to brute force an emotion um it, it's uh, it's effective and it works well and i think it's a, a I would say that, even though I have my qualms, uh, I do think that it it's it's a good adaptation or a good instinct in the adaptation to really sort of get into it because there is a lot of subtlety uh, that you probably have to suss out for the, you know sort of like the mainstream viewer, right? Uh, I don't know that it maybe i'm I'm not giving. <laughs> our, our, our viewers that much credit but sometimes you just gotta you know go straight out and, and bring drag that subtext out kicking and screaming into the light you know
0: yeah sometimes you just gotta show some like crying kids you know and all of a sudden we get it we understand the we understand the depth of the conflict we understand the stakes and uh and we don't have to linger for too long yeah yeah exactly right
1: um, and I, I and so I I think that this also applies to, you know, some of the other scenes where, for instance, I think you had mentioned uh, previously that uh, we 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 switch back and forth between this mounting conflict that's happening happening in Rohan, which is new to us because they they you know basically uh, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, are chasing the orcs that took Merry and Pippin across this countryside. And they had, they talk about, they'd mentioned the gap of Rohan, uh, as sort of like a, a way to get towards Gondor in fellowship. But here they're actually in Rohan. Um, and, uh, supposedly the, the land of the horse Lords as Aragorn. So, uh, kindly points out, uh, maybe he saw it on a, on a roadside <laughs> now Probably. entering and now entering a land of the horse lords population, you know, one million uh, five million horses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, i'm I'm joking because that that I mean, it it does seem sort of funny because he mentions that in this like sort of like in a there's a lot of those lines where they're while they're running that feel very sort of soliloquy in a stage play type of feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't know
0: if you if you felt that. No, totally. And I you know, it's so funny. I feel like this film finally gives like this little trio of of characters their due. I think that to an extent they're a little bit underutilized in the fellowship just because they come in kind of late in the game at the midpoint and and they don't give Legolas a ton to do, you know, besides mm-hmm. be kind of badass and, you know, good with a bow. Which is what he's doing here as well, but I, I think that they really flesh out that that camaraderie between the three of these characters uh, in this one. But Legolas specifically is always given these very like expository lines where he explains like what a thing is. Um, and he does it a little bit in the fellowship too. I I can't remember what they're called, but like the crows that Saruman is using to like observe yeah. them, Cribane from Dunland, Crib- Cribane it's, from Dunland, right? And he just so like good. says it, and then the, he does the same thing with uh, with Shadowfax in this movie. Like when, when Gandalf calls him, and he's like, "Unless my eyes deceive me, like that's one of the the my- or, or whatever it's yeah, called, the, you know?" Like Mayars, my- yeah, yeah. And, and they <laughs> and they never tell us what those things are. They never like explain them. It like it, it feels. Explicitly there for fans of of the source text to be like, oh yeah, I'm glad that they're acknowledging that that's what that is. But it, yeah. for for them, it's it. Legolas is always that person, and then yes, very much like a soliloquy or like a like kind of like a, a classic sort of play, like a a chamber play. He does that thing where he's like, they run as if the whips of their masters were behind them, And exactly. And like, yes, tell, tells us all these things, and it's just like, <laughs> uh, all right, okay, like those. those well, Lines are are yeah a little a little funny to me. It it it's funny, but it's effective,
1: right? And we do get that before that line, we get Gimli going like, "What is it? Uh, three days with what sc- a scant uh, scant sign Bear rock can tell?" And you're like, "Okay, so you have been running for three days." Okay, thank mm-hmm. you, Gimli. <laughs> they
0: they do a good job of very like earnestly and urgently like injecting it into the conversations in a way that certainly doesn't feel naturalistic but you know if we're expanding upon this idea of like Jackson and and kind of camp uh you know that that we uh espoused in in the first episode it it's sort of that right like it 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 doesn't it seems very disinterested in feeling authentic or like real to life and and is just like a very heightened sort of reality and and makes things feel not silly because i i don't think it's silly you know but but there is something about it that like is so earnest and it's like self-seriousness or at least like on behalf of the characters that you can't help but like kind of imagine that they're all sort of in on it that they're just like being being very earnest on purpose and and saying these kind of lines
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean and and, it, it it is exactly that it's like these weird little moments where they dip either up or into camp that and then they just come right back out because I and and to be fair, like um Legolas gets like that that role because you know, what do your elf eyes tell you, Legolas? You know th- <laughs> that's so, one, you of know, uh, one of my favorites. One of my favorites. It's so great. <laughs> um they turn northeast towards Isengard and you're like, okay. Uh I do want to say that uh, in this we get a uh, we we also get with that um, sort of uh, some a couple of very quick scenes of Saruman basically doubling down on being you know sort of a lackey um, where it's it it's weird because I find that uh, it it's it almost. Um, Undercuts the fact that Saruman is trying to play both sides. He's trying to uh, appease Mordor, but he's also making making a play for the Ring himself. And mm-hmm. it, it, the the problem that I see with this is that you can sort of miss the fact that he's trying to get his hands on the Ring to become like a, a a rival to Sauron himself uh, because you get more scenes of him like building an orc army and terrorizing the countryside for my lord, Sauron, you know, and so on and so forth. And uh, you don't, it, it's sort of weird because you do get that one hint where, you know, like uh, uh, Legolas is seeing with his elf eyes that the orcs Presumably carrying one of the hobbits with the ring in their possession, uh, to Saruman mentions that they're heading northeast mm-hmm. uh, towards his tower. Uh, so that's the only indication that you get, really, that he's sort of trying to walk that knife's edge. Yeah, in in the film at least.
0: Yeah, well, and you know, like in if we're keeping in concert with like the the narrative exclusively in. In the film, it they almost play it out. You know, like when when Gandalf confronts him and and he traps him at Isengard, that mm-hmm. he is lot, allying himself with Sauron simply because he doesn't see an alternative. He doesn't see that that there can be any victory in in any other regard besides this particular path.
1: Right. And then to <laughs> like
0: you know like he kind of asked him like, "What did he promise you? Like, what did he tell you?" And and you you get the sense that. He's doing it because he was in some capacity promised like a, a, a cut, right? Like that he was going to like share power and, and Gandalf rightly tells him like that's, that's foolish to believe. But uh, yeah, they, they don't go too deep into the idea of like Saruman's motivation beyond, beyond that. And in this movie especially, like they don't, they don't dwell on him very much. He's just like kind of evil at this point.
1: Right. Right. I will say that um, it, it, if we can circle back to this flattening of motivations uh, regarding, because there is another place where that happens as well. And that's further on in the movie. Just,
0: mm. I'll, I'll come back to that because I'm pretty I'll, sure I'll, you know where I'm, I'll you know what I'm for sure. I think I do. I think I understand exactly where. Um, uh, yeah. And I think it might be near near the end of this film. Uh, if we're, if we're thinking about the same character in the same instance,
1: <laughs> I believe so. Yes. Um, but yeah. Uh, so then we get uh, a couple of scenes where, you know, where Mary and Pippin are sort of, uh, in a blur being taken by these, uh, orcs and, uh, we get the, the now famous line uh, because of a, an, an internecine conflict uh, and the fact that the, uh, the orcs, the uruk from Saruman have been given instructions to bring the hobbits back to Saruman alive and unspoiled. And, right. you know, it's... Even their apparently legs, really, Carlo, even their legs, they don't need apparently, those. Apparently so, you know, I, I guess the uruk are sticklers for following the spirit and the letter of the law. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, there there is this uh, very weird uh, sort of internecine conflict, which uh, is sort of just flattened into the orcs are hungry. They've been running for three stinking days. Um and so they're hungry, and they want to eat something. They need fresh meat. And uh, eventually, you know, a couple of the orcs eyes stray towards the hobbits. And yes, one of the one of the orcs says, "Well, what about their legs? <laughs> they don't need those, especially since they're being you know helped along to run." So, um, and so then you know the, we get the now famous line of you know basically one of the orc high just. Uh, splits one of them from stem to stern uh, uh open and you know declares that meets back on the menu boys
0: it's my favorite uh, line in in any of the films it is uh, <laughs> it
1: is truly a great line but i suppose we could um do we want to stop here or do we want to wait until uh the battle at helm's deep to talk about
0: uh, orcs and um, the problems of <laughs> regarding orcs. Oh boy! Well, let's you know what let's let's uh, venture into that territory here. I think because there are some things about Helm's Deep that I I would like to talk about specifically, like the, the battle itself, the technology around it. But uh, yeah, let's let's discuss this lingering question about orcs and Tolkien's legacy, uh, an mm-hmm. imprint on the perception of orcs. Because this right. is. We, we got, we got a little bit into this on Twitter this week, not, not into it in the sense that we were arguing, but just like that people were discussing it. And, and we, we waded into the conversation and the discourse ever so slightly.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, in, and I'll say this, um, perhaps maybe not a full defense, uh, but at the very least in, in the source material, Tolkien was very careful. To not really ever describe orcs very much, I mean they there's no skin color attributed to them uh, at the very least, I do believe that they he mentions a couple of times that they have uh, sort of sort of slanted eyes or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is uh in his letters when he was talking about um sort of if the if the uh books were to be adapted in any way he would um i don't have the quote immediately at hand but he mentioned that uh, if anything they would be sort of short squat sallow skinned uh and basically these stand-ins for an oriental threat like an, like the mongols basically and he he is quick to clarify that what a European would consider a threat. Um, now this is nowhere, none of these descriptions with the exception of maybe, uh, swart or slant eyed, <laughs> uh, exist in the text themselves. And it's not like he's like hammering at home. He just Interesting. very, very like, it's very sparse. Um, and, uh, it's very weird because the uh, the way and the direction that uh, Jackson and Company decided to go was a different direction. Uh, specifically, with the Urukai, uh, the Urukai look—they're dark-skinned. Uh, they uh, in in fellowship we have a brief sequence where they are um, sort of bonding uh, together into a fighting Yurukai sort of contingent for Saruman. And it's presented with them like, which is an interesting innovation in the imagery, but also somewhat disturbing because they, instead of having a stylized painted white uh, white hand, which was Saruman's symbol, uh, they just used like white clay handprints uh, on their helmets and and faces and whatnot. And you see them in this almost um, orgiastic ecstasy, you know, when they're being marked by the white hand uh, and we don't get that here. Right. Because they're not going to over overdo it, but you know, the Urghai are tall, uh, dark skinned and definitely um, yeah. Uh, very, very different from from what i imagined
0: yeah you know I, there's something about the the urukai specifically that uh yeah that that engenders some sort of perception of race and i don't know what exactly it is i think maybe part of it is just like the what you're saying, Carlo, part of it being that kind of like, you know, the the, the handprints themselves and sort of like the, the almost kind of like body painting kind of style of them, the way that they're dressed, mm-hmm. um, the sort of fixation on their physicality and and like specifically that there's like a substantial portion of them that remains like nude and, and sort of like they're perpetually wet or like mm-hmm. oiled, yes, you very, know? Very moist, yes. Yeah. And... <laughs> I don't know if it's if it's meant to be interpreted this way, but, you know, I I am someone who has seen Peter Jackson's other films. And, you know, in in Dead Alive, there is a uh, a representation of like aboriginal characters in that. Uh, Likewise, there are, um, you know, black bodies as sort of natives on Skull Island in Mm -hmm. uh, his his 2005 King Kong remake. And both right. of those instances feel uh, very similar to the way that he has designed both aesthetically the bodies themselves, the painting of the bodies and, and like the weaponry uh, mm-hmm. feels very much like like those characters, you know, it, it, and maybe it's not. And there's arguments to be made, but even the fact that they have kind of like matted hair and, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of like dreadlocks, some of several of them. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah I, I it it could be just like an accident but it, but it's certainly one that feels like there was a perception there at the very least of styling them after after uh you know more uh indigenous or, or native cultures of of like black and brown bodies that that would, would have sort of a one to one comparison to them
1: Right. I think my I uh, where I really drew a connection and realized that you know, good old Petey, he may have some issues. I I'm not <laughs> I, I don't want to cast aspersions. I don't want to judge anybody prematurely, but definitely there's something going on, especially because I, I did go to see uh King Kong. Like his King Kong is great. It's a it's overlong. Uh it, it, but also like the depiction of the uh the, the Skull Island uh, indigenous people or natives or whatever you want to call them. Exactly. Um, it's a, it's a weird replication of the 1930s, uh, film Mm -hmm. without any examination of what might be a problem with that depiction in the 1930s and just sort of carrying it forward and adding some weird flourishes that feel very much like that, um, that idea that Lovecraft has, where you know, the, these, are, these are people that have degenerated, uh, mm, uh yep. that have become ba- debased, uh, and especially in the, the King Kong remake, they, they don't even talk, they're just sort of like murderous, silent, uh, weirdos, just yeah, and, and they're totally black skinned. Yes, if,
0: if anything, they're given less to do and, and less agency than they are even in the original 1930s feature.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Like, yeah, exactly right. Because at least in the 1930s, which is problematic as hell, but you know, um, they do seem like a society. They do seem like they have a relation, they have relationships between each other uh, and so on. And they have a rationale, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, For doing what they're doing Uh, here in Peter Jackson's version, they're just sort of silent and, and just like, I don't even know how to explain it. They're not even really people is the problem. I think. Yeah. You're not and even supposed to track them as people, yeah, you know, totally.
0: And you know, like that dynamic is also at play here in, in the two towers as well. And in the Lord of the Rings films, you know, there, there's mm-hmm. absolutely zero agency. They're, con- you know, they're, they're, uh, they work on behalf of literally a, a character that they call the white wizard. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> Uh, there, yeah, there's there's very little agency here, and and you know the, they're depicted in in a way that is meant to, I think, dehumanize them, despite the fact that they do bear significant resemblance in in many of their aesthetic choices and features to humans. And um, right, yeah, well, I, I, I I think it might be a little bit of a problem.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and to to perhaps build upon that a little bit because you you mentioned no agency and I don't think that there's a big um, step up in the source material, right? Because uh, you know if if we want to get into a little bit of the lore, like the uh, I mean we, it, it's covered in the in the first film, like Sauron basically exposits. Gives exposition as to, you know, do you, do you know how the orcs came to be? And, you know, so on and so forth. And basically, you know, they, they used to be elves and way back when, uh, you know, uh, Sauron and his uh, boss before him basically tortured and mutilated elves until they became orcs. Um, So, you know, they, they never really had, have that much agency because apparently they've just, they're just deranged you know, they've been created in a sort of a deranged mental state, if you will. Right. I don't want to get too armchair psychology, but you know, <laughs> they're not, they're not, they don't think along the right, the, 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 the same lines as uh, the, the other peoples of middle earth. Right. They, they delight in, you know, creating mischief, uh, murder, killing, weapons of war, so on and so forth. Um, but I will say that especially in the two towers, we do get some, uh, some of the orcs actually talking amongst themselves and they're very well aware (laughs) of where they stand in the pecking order of the grand scheme of things. And that is at the very bottom. Uh, and, and it's really interesting because it gives you a little window into they, they know, you know, they, they know who they are and what role they, they sort of serve. Uh, but here it's just very, and, and, you know, to be fair in, in what way I can, I I guess it's just simply, again, going back to the finessing part, you do have to sort of, I guess, flatten some of those motivations a little bit just to get things moving along. And, you know, in a grand, uh, narrative that pits good versus evil, you know, you, you, sort of don't have a lot of room for nuance, I suppose. So, I mean, that's not exactly a defense. It's more of a, perhaps an explanation, uh, a, a way that I can see, you know, if I were writing this, I would probably be trying to figure out ways to, you know, just get the story moving. Yeah, so we don't we don't get <laughs> yeah. we don't get like uh, the 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 real reasons for that sort of internecine conflict that we have right before meat goes back on the menu, uh, which is basically uh, the the in the source there is there's two different factions of orcs that are sort of uh, helping each other out in this. And, you know, some of them are from Sauron and some of them are from Saruman and (laughs) never the twain shall meet is basically the point here. Yeah. Uh, And for the same reasons that we were discussing earlier, the fact that Saruman is trying to to really walk that knife's edge uh, without letting on too early what he's trying to do. But anyway, um, back to the film. Because I, I I promised myself I wouldn't stray too much into
0: the books. God damn it! No, it's okay. <laughs> I I appreciate you going there with this one. Let me ask you this really quickly, Carlo. Because I you know I know that you're uh, you know something of a writer yourself and delve uh, heavily into fantasy. Uh, you know mm-hmm. both both filmic and and literary. Have you seen a, a sort of like a a reimagining of the orc character? in in our modern era that you think uh, avoids that kind of p- problematic representation or done anything to like redefine orcs outside of uh, some sort of like racial corollary <sighs> hmm. or have um, you just seen them kind of be like taken taken out of a lot of fantasy
1: well i mean so I, I guess we could we could deviate real quickly into a tangent right um because this this sort of goes into that whole recent, uh, rather recent announcement regarding, you know, like uh, Wizards of the Coast was going to try to de-racialize orcs, right? Uh, Okay. Um, And try to, because that's the thing, like if you pluck the idea of orcs, right, uh, and you just plop them without the context and the mythology um, that Tolkien has built around them, which is sort of problematic on itself uh, because he's sort of uh, – again, he's trying to not uh, – honestly, I believe Tolkien was trying to not um, – because he disliked allegory and comparisons of one-to-one, he was trying to develop his own race that was not a one-to-one representation of some race on earth, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, that that's – sometimes it's a fool's errand to try to do that. Um, but, you know, he he did what he could uh and and i honestly believe given what i've read of the man himself i think he was trying to be as progressive as you can be <laughs> as a guy who was born you know like uh in the last years of a, the 1800s and uh was writing this in you know 1950 whatever right um you know he 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 was pretty good for the time Right. Yeah. Um but once you pluck out a intrinsically evil race and you plop it without its context into another setting, any D and D setting, for instance, you start to run into the problems. What does what is exactly an evil race? What does that mean exactly? How does a a society form <laughs> when you are a race that is evil? And more and more to the point, um I believe uh for the longest time uh I the the orcs and half-orcs and all that stuff um were usually portrayed as living in sort of um very tribal societies uh and so then you get of course, people mapping things one to one with actual people that live in the world, you know right uh, and you know there's where you start having problems because th- this is the type of thing that happens, right um, so you know they 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 did they, they announced that. I don't know how uh sincere they were. Uh, Given some of the uh, people that work at Wizards of the Coast being not quite exactly, you know, leftists or even progressive. (laughs) Sure. Uh, But, you know, that's another story altogether. Uh, If I were to perhaps uh, posit a different fantasy uh, property, I've been thinking about this recently and um, there was a, a series of books by Tad Williams written, I want to say like mid nineties, uh, called Memory, Sorrow and Thorn, which is like a sort of a, a fantasy ish Europe with not quite Vikings, Vikings and, uh, and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, th- they don't have orcs there but they do have what are co- what people in outside of uh, the north lands uh, which are you know like you know, obviously polar regions call trolls which as you as you go along in the story you realize oh he's not a troll troll he's just basically like you know uh, and somebody indigenous like an Inuit or you know one of the other first nations that live in the polar regions and mm-hmm. you know he'd, he'd be you know, like uh, similar to an Inuit or whatever other tribes live in the polar regions of earth, Uh, which is interesting. Uh, He also has like these uh, sort of elf creatures um, and they are, they have different factions and a couple of the factions just hate humans so much because the humans were the ones that brought like iron and uh, you know, they, they suffer from that uh, sort of fairy, thing that they are very iron cold iron specifically is deadly to them. So they hate humans for taking over the, the lands that they used to inhabit. So there you have, you know, it's not, I don't think it's mystified. Um, there is a big bad uh, who is basically in one of these elves who decided that he was going to try to uh, transcend death and uh, and apparently he succeeded, and so he becomes like the big bad of the of the of the series. But you know, it's interesting because he approaches it from a very: this is the result of uh, conquest, right? They they don't hate just because they hate other you know other creatures that are not whatever elf creatures they are. They hate them because they push them out of their lands, and that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah so anyway i I think that that's somewhat similar and and uh if you haven't picked it up uh yourself aaron or other people that are listening i think it's worth a shot uh it's a it's a large series of books but they did uh if you're a fan of uh George Railroad Martin's uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, he credits Tad Williams' uh, books in the, those three books uh, as inspirations for A Song of Ice and Fire.
0: So there wow. you have it. All right. So shout out to Tad. You know, when you're when you're saying all that stuff about conquest, you know, going back to the movie finally, because <laughs> I, I know I, I, I caused us to divert a little bit. I apologize for that. Um, but uh, I, I will check out that Ted Williams stuff. That sounds interesting. Um, I, I was thinking about like Saruman in terms of, you know, the, the, the one moment where we kind of see him in, in sort of like flexing this kind of like demagogic quality to himself, you know, in, in terms of uh, kind of like weaponizing and, and marshaling. Uh like the wild men of of like Rohan to, to like take back the land from from the Rohirrim and and from uh from the people of Rohan and kind of like ginning up this conflict by being like you know the the horse lords like drove you off of your land and took your crops and you know it, it kind of reframing these people you know who we were supposed to side with as as some sort of kind of uh yeah sort of sort of like a, a, a imperialist kind of force in some ways
1: right right i think it's i think it's interesting because he is using he is sort of weaponizing that uh that idea um and it does seem that there is some resentment among amongst the the hill folk right um mm-hmm. that somehow they their lives are are worse because the Rohirrim have been around, but um can we talk real quick and and maybe flash forward yeah. to um to the, the the scene where Aragorn oh actually we need to do this first right we need to talk about the return or the white <laughs> the white wizard um mm, okay yeah that honestly this is possibly one of the more moving moments uh in in this film um where uh basically the, the Aragorn, we go back to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, uh, getting to the borders of the Fangorn Forest, um, where they have been basically told by the uh, Rohirrim and Eomer, uh, the captain of the, a, a cavalry division or whatever. Uh, I'm not sure that that's exactly his rank. But anyway, uh, he, he sends them that way because they basically slaughtered all the orcs. And there was no survivors. So they're sitting there like, well, shit, no survivors. So they go there anyway to see what they can see. And they realize that um, that Merry and Pippin may very well have survived after all, not having been you know, perceived uh, by the Rohirrim on their raid, yeah. and have strayed into the Fangorn forest, which mm-hmm. is sort of a a not quite uh dangerous area, but definitely a very strange forest. And people don't like to go in there because they say that the trees seem to have sort of minds of their own. Yeah.
0: I like that we get a, a brief reference to uh the old forest near Buckland. Uh that that they actually do travel through in the in the fellowship novel in this moment yes. with, with Marion Pippin, which is a, a nice little kind of call out. Um and also this scene is just like really fun watching uh Aragorn do his rangering, you know, as he's yeah. like piecing <laughs> together everything and like their ha- their hands were bound and then their bonds were cut and they ran away from the battle and it it's yeah. it's a great little moment. Yeah, yeah,
1: I, I it's one of those moments where you go like, "Oh shit. We're getting some ranger hours here." <laughs> um and yeah, they 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 wander into Fangorn and uh they realize that up ahead there's there's a wizard. There's a white wizard that they they they're pretty sure that they see, and they're you know they start sort of whispering to each other, you know, don't let him speak. He'll cast a spell on you. And when they go forth and you know leap forward to attack, you know, Legolas fires an arrow. Uh, Gimli you know swings his axe, and so on and so forth. And Aragorn rushes forward with his sword, you know, uh, wielding his sword. And uh, each of them is sort of rebuffed in turn. Uh, you know, Aragorn's sword becomes red hot, and he has to drop it. And uh, you see like this flash; you can barely see, but there's a white figure in there, and you know speaks very, very much like Saruman. You know, and when the the light sort of filters a little bit, you realize it's Gandalf, mm-hmm. and it's Gandalf dressed all in white, and sort of he's not himself. Exactly. Which is why they, they didn't recognize him. And, uh, you know, you get that beautiful line where he's like, I've come back to you at the turn of the tide. Um, where, you know, he, he he's, oh, yes, Gandalf. Yes, I was Gandalf.
0: I was Gandalf the Grey. But- <laughs> yeah, just regaining his memories. He's I, I do really like this part. And, uh, of course, you know, my... My, my devoted co-host on Hit Factory, Carly, uh, was watching along um, and, and was like, I, I don't understand what Gandalf is and, and like, why this is <laughs> happening. So I was like, there's... It's complicated. Just go with it. Um, but uh, I, I think that the film handles this part pretty well, too. You know, that, that there is actually, like, a, a lot of kind of dense context mm-hmm. to, like, w- what Gan- Gandalf was doing, like, on this, like, lowest realm uh and and you know like passing on to some form of an afterlife and then brought back and yeah i i think that it it handles it very matter-of-factly and and visually kind of communicates everything it needs to and and gets the story moving so i i i really really do like this scene in fangorn and and just throwing us right back in and from i think that point on like the movie really starts to go
1: yeah because then, then uh, Gandalf is able to. Well, we, we get the <laughs> the funny why Gandalf? That's one of the Miaras, if I'm not, if my eyes do not deceive me. Yeah. His Legolas's elf eyes do not, in fact, deceive him because they, that they is very rarely do. Yep, it is. Shadowfax. Yes. Um, and so they they head straight to the halls uh, where where uh, the the basically where the King Theoden uh you know holds court and they have to then face up against a, a wizened and sort of very sort of gross looking like they oh my god they added like they must have added like prosthetics to his face the, to make it look like super
0: so good like the, yeah yes this this is like one of my my favorite moments in in the film and uh you know shout out to uh the actor here, Bernard, Bernard Hill, Bernard Hill, I think is, is who plays him in this. Yes, um, I believe you're correct. Yeah. He's a fantastic actor. Uh, and the, yeah, the, the makeup effects that they're doing here look great. Like you, he's, he's wholly convincing. And, and uh, this, everything that he does in the film are, are definitely some of my, some of the high points for me. I, yeah. I, well, go ahead. Can we,
1: can we talk about <laughs> real briefly about the God Brad Dourif, because this oh, is—I think, yes. he, this is another casting uh, spoiler, folks. It's uh, perfect. Whenever, yeah, whenever Brad Dourif is in a film, you know he's going to be the creepy
0: bad guy. And also, too, though, like, let's let's talk about this. The character's name is Grima Wormtongue, <laughs> and I'm wondering in what reality someone with that name would ever be a friend or an ally. You know, where it's like, oh, that's just worm Wormtongue. Yeah, he's seems like a pretty chill dude, you know? Like had lunch with him the other day. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> Definitely not, you know. I, I his name's Wormtongue. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but I mean Brad Dourif is like one of my favorite actors and uh he's yes, being uh, uh his his usual creepy self here and like perfect for that role. <laughs> what
1: Go go down to the worm tongues. I don't want to go to the to the worm house. <laughs> Why not? They're perfectly nice people.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, he just had uh, it was an accident of uh, of birth that he was given a bad name, and uh, you know, just people hate him for having you know having the the last name Worm
0: Tongue. Right. We made him evil as a society by casting him out and and uh, ostracizing him for for the for the the surname Worm Tongue. <laughs> it's not i mean his great-grandpappy wormtongue did perfectly fine in
1: this country and no one made fun of him yes ebenezer uh, wormtongue was a was a perfectly capable <laughs> nice man but yeah so uh he is the advisor to uh to Theoden king which is funny because i did not know that in um in uh, tolkien's own sort of uh Rohirrim is uh, I'm not sure if that's uh, maybe it's just Rohirrim. Um uh the 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 name Theoden would just be king. So his his name is King King just in oh. case you didn't know. <laughs> like basically uh it's it's a funny thing because uh I, I was looking this up and apparently every one of the kings uh of Roh- Rohan uh each one of them has a different name that means Uh, king as well so it's just really funny to me interesting ah fuck it these people all call him king fuck it (laughs) but anyway so theoden is all sort of wizened and just like just made he's just paralyzed and just made old and gross looking uh he's he's fallen under a spell apparently and, uh, and so we get the, um, apparently the, <laughs> the dirty half dozen that come in and just like basically, <laughs> uh, conduct a, a coup within the halls of, <laughs> of, Theodon's Theoden's uh, kingdom to basically, uh, perform a, an impromptu exorcism of, uh, the spell <laughs> that's holding him bound or whatever. Uh, I just found that sort of, it, it moves things along really quickly, but I always thought like. I mean, honestly, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't the, the the wouldn't Rohan or the Roharim just be fine with just expulsing them completely from the kingdom?
0: Yeah, like I <laughs> They, I don't they know. did like a one six on on Theoden, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, and I I like that scene a lot too. It's like you know, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli just start kind of like pounding on all of like the guards within the hall. Mm-hmm. And just like beating them up, Gimli's like kicking people in the face while while Gandalf is kind of like very, uh, very sincerely like walking towards him, like flashing the staff. And yeah, this this part is this part is fun. I I like what they do here with this. And uh, I mean,
1: it it works, but it's also like I I just had to think to myself, it's like. "Hmm." Yeah, they'd be fine with actually just banishing them all. <laughs> they drop them off at the borders of, of Rohan. I was like, fuck <laughs> off.
0: See ya. <laughs> Have yeah.
1: fun uh, preventing that war. You said.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very funny, but it, it leads into I think one of my, and I know I said this about a few moments already, but uh, one of like the the most emotional moments of the film for me is the scene where Theoden. Uh, awakens from his his curse and it's lifted and he's finally revived and conscious again and uh and realizes that his son theodred has passed away you know with without him being able to see him and and we go to that scene where he is uh with with gandalf kind of in the field and and uh lamenting his loss and and you know saying no no parent should have to bury their child and, and it's a very emotional, very affecting scene. I think they did a really good job with that one.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and Hill really pulls it off. Like he he's able to really um sort of bring forth like his face crumples mm-hmm. with grief and he drops the was it the symbol symbol mine uh a flower that uh that decorates all the the mounds of each one of the kings that have come before and whatnot. Yeah. And um he drops the flower and he just like just cries Uh, and it's really affecting. It really is. Especially Uh,
0: since we never meet Theodred alive and like mm. conscious in, in this cut of the film, like there's a little bit of him in, in the extended edition, but in, in this one, we only see him being carried like on, on horseback by A. And for the rest of the time, he's, uh, you know, laying unconscious before he finally dies.
1: Right. Right, and and I do believe that there's a a, a a perhaps an inference that Grima had something to do with, like him taking a turn for the worse because he's he's slowly trying to recover. He's not conscious or anything like that, mm-hmm. but you know, obviously he is a uh, an heir to the throne, and so therefore you know. Uh, to To maintain his hold, I wouldn't put it past uh, Grima for you know d- doing that type of thing
0: it's definitely implied that he he may have uh
1: smothered him in the night or something yes um, so yeah, and this then leads to uh, Grima being uh, basically tossed down some stairs uh, and expulsed from Rohan and uh, sent back to his master to to basically uh you know go lick at his boots or whatever right and <laughs> uh with his worm tongue um, <laughs> so uh and that's where we get uh finally you know the 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 conflict of will Rohan join um and and respond to gondor uh and you know the the response is from theoden that you know when where was gondor for us
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's got a point got a point yep. i got to admit um and uh so instead of uh rallying and calling back his, his uh, you know, his I would say his bannermen or what what have you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a, getting a little too Game of Thrones on the head there, right? <laughs> um, but uh, rallying, you know, his troops and heading out to Gondor, he instead decides, no, we're going to go to Helm's Deep uh, because that's uh, where in the past they have holed up uh, it's a fortress where they've holed up and basically, in times of danger, uh, survived. So, you yeah. know, makes perfect sense within the you know the context of uh, Rohan and the Rohirrim and uh, and so on. So we, we then we get the escort mission, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it feels like a lot of side quests in this in this movie. Like the whole the whole thing kind of winds up just being like, oh, we're we're you know trying to find our friends, and then we get pulled into this conflict, and then all of a sudden it 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 you know becomes something uh, much more important <laughs> than our than our initial uh our, our initial goal. So so here we are, and then yes, the escort mission, the wargs. Uh which is a fun little scene can you can you remind me is, is i and I know we don't want to talk too much about it, but is that in the book? I don't remember reading the war scene
1: no no that yeah, that I, is I, a yeah, that's added to the like that entire escort mission which makes sense right uh you know for the logic of once we've started this um sort of thread of the narrative, it makes sense that you would need to have them sort of escort. You know these refugees, essentially, to right. to the place. Um, but you know, uh, in because of that, then we get the Wargs, which is a fun scene. Not mm-hmm. going to lie, no. It but then we is. get, yeah. But then we get the additional scene on top of that of Aragorn <laughs> apparently falling into a river, perhaps to his death. Which I don't know if it really. Honestly for me, I don't think it added anything for me. Um I know that the that that uh you know uh Jackson Boyens Walsh and uh Sinclair and and, and company probably wanted to thread uh yet another conflict which is to then present the conflict of Arwin mm-hmm. um uh going against Daddy uh, Elrond uh to stay and 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 be in love with Aragorn and marry him and blah blah blah, versus leaving and living forever uh before the last ships leave middle earth um and then you know p- pitting that against uh her love for Aragorn and him whatever uh it, it, it I'm not entirely sure it it all works for me honestly
0: yeah this is definitely like the most difficult point of the movie and difficult I mean by like uh, just just the moment where I I think my interest starts to kind of taper off a little bit until we get Mm -hmm. back into the action of it at the end and and all of the kind of points converge around Frodo and Sam and Osgiliath and and uh, you know, Merry and Pippin with with the Ents and and then Helm's Mm Deep of course but yeah, this is the part where this time around on this watch I was like, man this part is a lot longer than I remember Mm -hmm. it being um from the point at which he like falls to the to the point where they're finally like you know a- a- amassing their forces and preparing for the final battle that that kind of last leg of the second act definitely drags a little bit
1: right well and 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 let me let me just say this because um th- this seems also like one of these things where they tried to almost well, you know, I, I want to say that almost shoehorn, but it's not true because it's in the source material a little bit, uh, that, um, I, I, I we, we almost forgot that, um, Elmer's sister, um, uh, Eowyn. Eowyn, uh, yes. is, is the, uh, basically would be the, the next heir after Elmer, uh, to Theoden's kingdom. Uh, and so she seems to have taken a shine to Aragorn. So then yes. you, you get this sort of uh, triangle, you know, like this lover's triangle, not quite because none of it's consummated. None of it's really there, there. Right. Yeah. It's and all they,
0: very much, you know,
1: very romantic love. Let's put it that
0: way. Right. It's unrequited. And they also like, don't, do much with it like it It feels very unsatisfying like they introduce the idea that she's kind of you know fancies aragorn but he never reciprocates in kind in any capacity besides like maybe like a, a a flirting moment on on like this sort of escort mission and then you know like a maybe like a look that's a few seconds too long but it it never really pans out and seems like they're like not willing to take it to to the end point that they that they want to or, or that they maybe should if they're, if they're willing to introduce it. The other thing about this too, and this is maybe me just being persnickety about it, but like one of these women is Liv Tyler and the other is Miranda Otto. And like Liv Tyler <laughs> is like, and they make her like this fairy, you know, this, this like immaculate, like deified sort of like elvish goddess. Like it, mm-hmm. it just, the, the two do, and, and they like purposely make Eowyn very kind of like homely very plain you know the kind of like uh more like a a rural kind of woman and it's just like these two things like if if you're trying to make me think that they're in competition i'm not really buying it (laughs) because like because you're you're certainly favoring Liv tyler and and her aesthetic and, and like her beauty here above above all and like that to me is just another thing that kind of like kills any sort of uh any sort of like uh, very similitude of of this like conflict, this like this emotional conflict that we're supposed to buy into, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, uh, what you are saying, Aaron, is that um, blondes really aren't your thing. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, what I am saying is that Liv Tyler will always remain my thing for sure.
1: All right, all right. I I, I could dig it. I could dig it. Um, but yeah, uh, and, and so. <sighs> because it's not really i think to your point yeah and to build on that i i think that because we are as as the audience we are pretty clear <laughs> like i think that everyone in the audience has sort of also made that calculation and gone like yeah yeah it cute and everything but you know <laughs> harwin come on man <laughs> yeah um which, you know, it's maybe unfair, but that's sort of the message that you get without it being hammered home. You, you, There's really not really any danger of Aragorn really, really falling for Erwin. Um, so uh, when he falls into the river, she seems crushed. And when he returns after a few days... Uh, when the defenses are, are, you know, starting to be built and, and sort of uh, uh, bolstered and whatnot at Helm's Deep, uh, she, she you know, the, the look on her face is that of pure joy. So, you know, um, and then uh, we, we could probably uh, jump back a little bit because we forgot to mention that in the process of Sam and Frodo trying to navigate these hills, these stony hills, um, Gollum finds them they They realize that Gollum has been following them, and Gollum has this great moment where he's sort of crawling almost gecko like down this cliff wall to mm-hmm. you know to basically either st- maybe steal the ring, throttle Sam and Frodo in their sleep, perhaps both. We're not entirely sure. Uh, but we never get there because basically both of the hobbits have been waiting for him. They spring up, grab him, and basically, in the altercation, uh, I mean, let's face it, Gollum has been doing some
0: some pro wrestling because uh, he, he he has some moves. He does. He's he's also a biter. He like you know goes goes for the the jugular sort of, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah like definitely, just definitely bites. injures Sam at one point. Yeah,
1: bites him like really hard on the shoulder. Shit, <laughs> that, that that looks painful. Uh, but in the meantime, like they, they're, they managed to tame Smeagol or Gollum and, uh, and convince him uh, to, to, he, he swears upon the precious. Right. So, uh, and Frodo tells him that, you know, uh, you better watch out, you know, the precious will twist your words and, and hold you to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't really want to do that. Are you sure about that? He's like, yeah, on the precious, I'll swear on the precious. So they, they ask him to lead them to the Black Gate of Mordor. And uh so we have, you know, they 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 run after him, they eventually get to the Black Gate. Uh the Black Gate uh opens briefly as they watch from a, a nearby promontory as more troops march in, non-orc troops. Uh these are either I forget if they're Southrons or Easterlings or whatever. Um And so uh, basically it becomes pretty apparent even though, it should have been apparent uh, for Frodo who seems really, uh, really
0: dumb (laughs) in this particular scene. Seem a little dumb here. (laughs) They're like, we're we're just gonna run for it, it. we're gonna go.
1: I'm gonna make a run for it. And you're like, (laughs) it's a bare field, buddy. (laughs) Like there's rocks, gravel, there's nothing for cover. There is nothing there. And it's a gigantic gate that is probably the the size of a stadium. Like, the si- each gate is the size of a football stadium. It's like, yeah, it's very heavily
0: surveilled. I, I don't know what Frodo was trying to do here. <laughs> yeah, it was not going to work out one way or the other here. And so, yeah, I... I- Think that uh, that Gollum or Sméagol, I guess, whichever we want to call him at this point, uh, makes the right call, trying to prevent them from doing it and and leading them a, a different route through the mountains and then up the up those stairs uh, and and through a tunnel, yep. as he says. But um, yes, we, I I need us to talk a little bit about because we can't separate uh, the character of Gollum who like makes his first appearance in this film from the incredible performance of one Andy circus. And it feels like every time we come on the show, uh, Carla, every time hit factory makes an appearance on Podside, we are, we are, are uh, praying at the church of Andy circus and his motion capture work. <laughs> uh, first as Caesar and and now as, as Smeagol, but he is, he is so good. And, like I can't imagine that character coming to life without like the the effort that he puts into that performance, and especially you know the the one scene that I think is one of one of the best in in the entire mm-hmm. film, that that one where the camera sort of does that uh, that sort of swing move from left to right and orients, mm-hmm. you know the 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 two sides of this character, Smeagol and Gollum on either side of the frame talking to one another and then eventually just starts cutting back and forth between them to make it look like a conversation. It's a, it's a good little moment of, of like cinematic language, you know, taking, Mm -hmm. taking shape here and also just Andy circus performing, right. And, and giving nuance and giving pathos to like both sides of this character, which he does again later on, once they're captured by Faramir as well, you know, and kind of like, uh, you know, shuddering in a corner by himself. But but his performance is so good, and yes. he just he he remains one of like my favorite actor. I think that he is kind of like one of the unsung heroes of like modern cinema. Like uh, so much of his work is done, you know, with a lot of lot of digital makeup applied to him and a lot of other like external work to to bring characters to life. But ultimately, at the end of the day, like underneath all of it, it is him. And it is yes. him affecting that voice, and it is him doing all the little nuances of that character. And he is uh, yeah, he's just brilliant. he's He's one of the other ones in this that's just like profoundly yeah. uh, just like incredibly wonderful
1: yeah, I, I I can't agree with you more and And that scene, um specifically, is one of those scenes that really sort of if you didn't get it before this is the scene that will definitely make you get that. This is like, you know, Gollum and Smeagol, you know, he's a wretched creature, but he, he, you finally get to understand like the pressure that he has, you know, he has to every second of his existence has to, that that he does not have Mm -hmm. the ring has to basically sort of negotiate and wheedle and figure out ways around his addict self, right? This is basically a portrait of addiction. And I think it's very well uh portrayed here, like the the way that his golem nature really just digs into him and just just slowly but surely will just pry any small victories that Smeagol has out of his grasp because you need the precious. yeah, You know, and it was me that helped you. And, and that's the chilling part of it. The, the fact that, you know, any victories that Smeagol has Gollum claims, it was me that helped you do this. You know, if it wasn't mm-hmm. for me, you wouldn't have survived this long and so on. So you know, I think it gives you a really good window into just you know what a sort of wretched and, and very tragic creature you know Tolkien himself has
0: devised in the narrative. He's incredibly think, tragic, yeah. he's just like, you know, and, and this is the point, like you said, where he just becomes utterly sympathetic.: Yes, yes. and you know you you
1: it's funny because when you see him, even though you know. That he has that sort of conniving nature, just bubbling underneath, waiting for any moment to really pounce and use that uh, setback to his advantage, right? Gollum wants to pull him back. Uh, you're really rooting for Smeagol to come on top. You really are. Um, and, 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 that's you know the 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 turning point there, and the 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 I suppose the incident that really uh, steals that victory from Smeagol is when they're captured by Faramir. Yeah. Uh, um, not he isn't captured because he's too wily, and he sort of slips away. But as part of the the entire uh, sequence, I guess he follows Frodo and Sam as they're being taken to Faramir's sort of hideout. Um, and they see him uh, in this pool, diving into the pool, going after fish. And he's like sort of giving him this little almost a childlike sing song, you know, talking about, you know, how he's going to catch a fish, so juicy, sweet, and so on. It's sort of touching, sort of gross, but also, you know, Frodo says, let me, let me go. He, he'll go instead rather than have him be shot because uh, Faramir's uh, orders are that, you know, anyone that comes within, you know, sight of that pool of their hideout uh, is basically to be executed on site. Uh, So Frodo begs them to let him go and lure him in and knowing that he'll be sort of, you know, sort of captured by Faramir. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's where, you know, that betrayal as Gollum sees it, because, you know, that's the other aspect of Smeagol. He's very childish. Uh, So he's, he's got this very childish way of splitting the world. Between good, you know, those who love Smeagol and those who do not, mm-hmm. um, and you know the Bagginses already have a black mark against them. So this is really <laughs> the, this is really the point that you know he he was willing to give him a chance a little bit, but not really. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, and okay, so I guess we could we could talk a little bit about Faramir, um in this at this point because I think that this sort of
0: flattens faramir as well yes i'm Um, glad that we were thinking about the same character here so let's let's talk a little bit about i I would like to yeah let's just take faramir all the way to the end here and then come back to to helm's deep because he is incredibly boring in this movie like and and they and they make him like i don't know like i I, I think I think that *Return of the King* does a good job of of rectifying some of the issues I have with Faramir in this one, but they do completely flatten him. They they keep him at a distance from you for for most of the film and and don't really ever let you feel any of the things he's feeling, and and we're not privy to any of his motivations outside of like, oh, uh, I'm Boromir's brother, and uh, you have the ring, and we should take the ring, and I I believe the same thing that Boromir believed in the first movie, and and kind of make him. I don't know. In that way, it just feels sort of like a an extension or a vestige of that character, who was like a, a more developed and better character from the first for the first film. Mm-hmm. Totally
1: in agreement here. Uh, I mean, I, I will, I will probably, and if you'll allow me a brief moment to maybe uh, slightly spoil a little bit of the next movie, um, we do get some lines where uh, Faramir is very. Uh, like you said, he he is very much in line with Boromir uh, regarding the ring. Uh, he has exactly the same ideas, but you realize with Faramir that these are ideas that his father, uh, apparently uh, King Denethor or the steward of Gondor, uh, Denethor has uh, sort of um, inculcated in both of them. Yeah, And so without really... Ever having Denethor appear uh, on screen, you get this idea that Denethor is a bad ruler, and that also flattens Denethor as well, uh, and prepares you for you know the next movie. Uh, it, it's it's obviously implied that Denethor is just you know he's just not good. I mean he just wants the ring, and you know and. He doesn't get it. Somebody else should be on the throne of of Gondor and uh, ding, 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 ding. Guess who that might be. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's, I know why they do it uh, in the writing. I don't know that it completely works for me though. And I, I agree that Faramir being just basically, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like, uh, being in a, in like a role playing game, like a D and D game where, you know, like, oh, well, um, my character, my character, um, uh, Joe got killed and you, so that, that same person comes back next week. And, uh, this is Mo, he's exactly the same character, <laughs> but he's, his, he's Joe's brother. Yeah. And you're like, exactly. come on, bro. <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 play we know that. what you're doing. <laughs> we can play that, but come on, <laughs> just use a little bit more imagination here. Well, and uh, here's
0: here's the thing that I'm I'm curious about too. I, maybe I missed it this time, but like, and you know, woe is me. I it feels like I miss it every single time I watch this movie. But what changes in Boromir or not Boromir in Faramir? Excuse me, by the end of the film, because. All that really happens is, you know, they are, you know, going to to defend Ozgiliath. The Nazgul show up. Frodo walks to sort of like a high point on the wall and exposes himself to the Nazgul. And <laughs> he then, like offers him the ring. And right. it's like, dude. And then at like the very last moment, Sam, because it's always Sam, uh, comes in and saves the day and like tackles Frodo. Frodo draws a sword to him. And, uh, you know, Sam kind of cries and has that very emotional moment of like, you know, it's your Sam. Don't you recognize your Sam? Mm-hmm. And he admits yeah. to, to Sam that he can't do this thing on his own. And then Faramir says, it seems at last, Mr. Baggins, that we understand one another. And I don't, I don't understand <laughs> either of them <laughs> in this moment. I'm like, what, what the fuck just happened? And maybe maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I, I just like lost it on this watch, and, and it just you know it has never been highlighted for me. But I'm curious what you make of it in, in within the, the context of the film, without you know for, for a viewer bringing none of the of the context of the reading into it.
1: Yeah, it, it's 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 this is a difficult one to really parse the the way I read it is that uh, and it's not made very clear. Uh, Other than if you're like watching and you sort of piece it together. But I'm imagining that what Faramir is talking about is that uh, he's referring to, uh, I believe there's a a previous or the previous scene or scenes where uh, Frodo tries to convince him that the enemy is looking for the ring. And that no one can use it. Uh, it, it it's trying to be found um, by Sauron's forces. Mm-hmm. Um, so by demonstrating like the fact that he is really not under his own control, uh, you know, the Nazgul call to him and he just totters his way up the stairs and here have the ring. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um for for me, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the Faramir that we get on screen, because this is a Faramir that is very martial, very sort of warlike and 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 sort of war minded. Uh, I don't see him going like, "Welp, you were right, Frodo. We should probably let you go. No, this is the type of guy like this Faramir as he exists on screen to my mind would double down. It's like, no, well, see, this just means we need to double the guard. Um, you know, or I need to take the ring from this tiny man right. you know, and use it myself and show my father once and for all that yes, I am of quality. Um so, you know, uh, I, I I have difficulties because you're right. Uh this is sort of a Faramir that is Boring. He's sort of one note. He's, he's even flatter than like, he's, I, I don't want to say flatter than Boromir because that sounds like I'm, I'm backhanded, backhanding Boromir. Uh, Sean Bean brought a lot to that character. Um, whereas, you know,
0: uh, Fairmir just doesn't feel as vibrant or dynamic. Yeah. Which is a bummer too. Cause I actually, I really like David Wenham. I like this actor quite a bit. Uh, you know, Car- Carly mentioned on this watch, which is, is funny that she was like, he kind of looks like if you smash together Donald Logue and Donald Gleason." <laughs> and I was like, that is exactly what he looks like. He looks like both those characters, both those actors. <laughs> and uh, I, like, I can't not see it now. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that he's actually a good performer. He does a really, really good job playing kind of like, uh, duplicitous evil character in John Hillcoats, The Proposition, that came Ooh. out like a few years after this. Um, and, and like, he certainly has the chops for it. I just don't think that he's really given much to do in this one, which again, they they rectify a little bit in in the the sort of final chapter of this story and, and give him sort of that daddy issue kind of stuff and, and build that dynamic. But yeah, in, in this one here, like the only thing I can make of it is that right before the confrontation with the Nazgul, Sam tells him, like, the reason your brother died is because he felt exactly the way that you do. And, like, the mm. ring corrupted him, and it's not a force for good, and it caused him to try to kill, kill this, this hobbit, kill Frodo, and, and it led to his death. And then when he sees this exchange between Sam and Frodo, where he draws the sword on him before finally kind of, like, Collapsing into himself and admitting that he's incapable of bearing the burden of the ring, I think maybe that's what like turns him. But but all of that stuff is just like internal and done off screen. If there is any sort of dynamicism or change in mm. in his perception, well, I mean it, it's also a
1: weird you know, talking openly about something that's supposed to be a huge secret. Uh, amongst like basically a hundred other of his a hundred other men that are, uh, of Faramir's troops. Yeah. Um, you know, Talking openly about the one ring, uh, yeah, just, and how Boromir died because of this and blah, blah, blah. It's sort of also, uh, you know, it's a, it's a weird place to put that, that entire speech, uh, because that, that, um. Yeah, you know, and and again, I, I hate to 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 do this, but you know, a lot of the dialogue that we hear here, um, actually takes place in the hideout, mm-hmm. uh, in in the source material, which makes a lot of sense. You know, he's having counsel privately with you know, Faramir is holding counsel with Fra- uh, Sam and Frodo, and uh, it's only you know after sort of coming clean that he he comes to a decision. Um, you know, sort of on the battlefield uh, weird place to have a speech, dude, <laughs> especially when like a Nazgul just showed up and you know, you don't know how many more of the enemy are just lurking about, or if your troops have spies in them either. So it, it's just a weird place, uh, but you know, whatever it, it, it sort of works, but it doesn't really. Um, but you know, the, the, the fact is that, I forget, this, this, this isn't the next to the last scene. It's the next one. It's like uh, they break to talk about uh,
0: the aftermath of Helm's Deep, right? Yes, they break to talk about the aftermath of Helm's Deep, uh, which they do after, yes, after uh, Sam has that kind of like monologue where like- they, they intercut all of the other things happening. We get that, uh, yeah, the battle for Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle-earth is about to begin. And then back to the forest with Smeagol uh, and, and Gollum uh, in concert, you know, deciding what to do with the hobbits and uh, saying that they could have her kill uh, Sam and Frodo somewhere along the way, which uh, is, is a scene, of course, that takes place in Two Towers the Novel. And and leave a cliffhanger mm-hmm. at the end of it, but uh, we we won't spoil it for those who aren't aren't privy to that.
1: Yes, it's a, it's only a book that's what uh, eighty years old by now. Yeah, so. I mean,
0: <laughs> we we shouldn't spoil the any of the any of the content or details of this uh, this eighty year old story. Yes, none of it,
1: none of it all. Um, but yeah, I I think that in this I do understand. I was sort of. Um, I was sort of disappointed initially. Uh, uh, like I, I it, that disappointment has since died down mm-hmm. quite a bit, but I remember being sort of disappointed because the, the way that uh, the, the actual book ends is on such a cliffhanger.
0: It's so good, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great cliffhanger. But
1: yeah. But it's, it's also like this huge downer and, and I understand why, you know, uh, Peter Jackson and company decided, no, you know, we're going to push that into the next movie. Uh, you know, and and it is, uh, you know, we, we sort of get the last scenes of, uh, the two towers in sort of the first 30 minutes, I would say of return of the King. Mm -hmm. Um, it might be a little longer than that, but anyway, uh, you know, it, it would have been at the time, um, a, a huge bummer for a lot of people, Big time. but you know what? Um, honestly, I, I don't know. I think now, uh, you know, after a, a in a post infinity war world, that would have worked. I think.
0: I completely agree. I think that it would have absolutely been there. It would have extended this film into uh into a much, much longer tale. I think adding that, that portion of it, but may have done some things for some of that weirdness that we feel around like the, the climax here.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if they'd cut out some of the uh, Aragorn falling off a cliff and whatnot, they could have squeezed it in. Uh, And you never know. I mean, honestly, they may have initially filmed it exactly like that and then had to go back and reshoot Mm -hmm. to add stuff so that they could then fill in. So it'd be sort of an even, I you know, I haven't really looked looked into the background. It, it's been you know more than ten years since I watched any of the uh, sort of like the behind the scenes stuff. But you know I wouldn't be surprised that they they needed to add some some material uh, and you know some of the some of the warg, for, and and Aragorn and stuff like that falling off a cliff stuff does feel sort of like out of place. It doesn't feel like it's really that much of a part of the the entire story that's being told
0: here. I completely agree. But, you know, it, all of this does lead us, I think, to uh, maybe maybe the last thing we can talk about here, which is uh, the, the climactic battle of Helm's Deep. It's, it's pretty good, <laughs> I gotta admit. <laughs> well, you know, uh, so there's a couple of things that they do here that I think are, work really, really well, right? Like, th- they do, yes, like, set up the entire, like, last hour of this film, almost half of the film, uh, with with this battle, you know, intercut into it, uh, and you know, I there's been multiple kind of like video essays and pieces written about this, so I don't want to go too much into it, but you know, it's it's often like touted that the 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 battle itself is designed with its own three act structure, hmm. and and given its own sort of like narrative arc within it, where it. Uh, has its its kind of like inciting moments, its peaks, it's like low point, it's it and then, you know, like it's it's denouement. Um and and as you look along and kind of like trail trail it and, and you know kind of plot the points, it, it really does do that, which is which is cool. And and part of the reason why I think that this like prolonged battle sequence doesn't start to feel stale at any point. Mm-hmm. And it also yeah. really set the template for I think things that they start to do later on in, in other popular fantasy television and film, you know, notably I think like some game of Thrones stuff, like, like watchers on the wall and things like that. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely correct. The, 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 the battle sequence here, it doesn't ever seem to really flag for me. You know, it it doesn't feel like it's slowing down. I think that they, they, uh, establish, You know, apart from like the (laughs) – all the blonde babies in the caves, uh, there is that moment where you do see like the old men sort of having to part ways with their families and so on. Because they're being sort of recruited to man the walls or the battlements and whatnot. And that's sort of touching in a way. Uh, But, you know, I I also think that on the individual character levels, uh, we do get a a nice – sort of establishment of stakes where Aragorn is, you know, sort of having this sort of a, a heated back and forth with Legolas and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically uh, says, like in Elvish, you know, they're, they're talking about like, you know, they're, they're, these are all, you know, old men and and either they're too old or too young, you know, they're, they're all going to die. And basically uh, Aragorn's outburst is in, you know, a common tongue so that everyone else can, can hear it and says, well, then I'll die with them then. Um, And, you know, sort of establishes stakes that, you know, things aren't, this isn't the best army. Meanwhile, you know, you, you, you know, for a fact because you've seen it at least (laughs) at least two or three times in the course of the films that Saruman is actually like breeding an army out of pods that are perfect, you know, sort of a perfect warrior type of race um, will not belabor the point that we <laughs> talked about earlier, uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. The, and, and when they are standing on the battlements and they see like the sea of torches, uh, come in their way, you realize, oh shit, that's a lot. <laughs> mm hmm. Uh, I do also love the fact that the the battle actually starts because like the old dude can't really hold the bowstring that long <laughs> and just
0: like accidentally and, releases it before the command. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's it's a funny, funny, but also somewhat uh, tragic moment as well because you're like well, they could have stood there for a little longer. I don't yeah. know.
0: it 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 cuts the tension though pretty well and and adds like some of those like little comedic beats that are necessary throughout what is otherwise like a pretty, pretty dire kind of situation. Um, there is, you know, one thing with this battle and we didn't get a chance to talk about on the fellowship episode, which uh, is fine because I think that it's actually used uh, to better effect in in this film, maybe, maybe above all. But uh, did you look at any of the stuff like when this, when this film was being made and coming out about uh, Weta Digital's uh, massive program that they use to animate these sequences? it's been a while but okay. yeah it was basically like they had programmed like uh
1: almost they wanted to say it was almost like uh semi ai in the sense that it would be reactive to certain prompts right precisely like, yeah it's it's like it's yeah. fuzzy
0: it's fuzzy logic they build like different units that are like reactive to environments and to to other units so they don't have to like individually animate things and they can literally just populate these battlefields with thousands of, of individual units and just like essentially click play and let them go.
1: Yeah. That, that was, that was really interesting. And considering that, uh, you know, I, how long ago this was <laughs> really an interesting feat to manage. Um, yeah. I don't know, uh, you know, honestly, whether they have, I know that Weta it was a big thing for a while, I don't know that they've um, they've, they've, are they as successful as they were? Cause I, I get the feeling that, um, that they've sort of not disappeared exactly, but they've been definitely um, obscured by probably whatever Disney bullshit <laughs> is
0: out there right now. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is like rudimentary now, and I'm sure like, you know, kind of very, uh, very basic compared to some of the more elaborate stuff that they're animating now. But I remember at the time them touting this and like there was even like a a massive simulator that you could play with on the Lord of the Rings Ooh. website and like oh, interesting and like populate units and like watch like your own battles like get designed and stuff. And I was obsessed with this stuff because it was like kind of like playing a little video game of, you know, <laughs> and watching your, I... your creation come to life. It was it was really cool and just like one of those elements of like the marketing that worked as like that, that, you know, kind of, uh, external like immersive experience that just like made me obsessed with the movies.
1: Right. Right. Well, I mean, um, yeah. And, and I think that it works really well. There is, um, some really, uh, interesting flourishes like, uh, and I'm sure that, you know, it's been talked about before it's, you know, this is a movie that's 20 years old. (laughs) So, so, you know, the, the entire, um, uh, progression up the ramp to the uh to the to the doors the to helms deep and whatnot Mm -hmm. where they're they're using the shields and it just looks very insectile and just really cool visuals and so on and so forth um where it does it does really look like you know the they're gonna have a really hard time fending off uh this this force uh and, and and to your point, the 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 low point, you know the 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 dark night of the soul point of uh, the Helm's Deep battle would be when you know you get the the orc Olympic runner uh, <laughs> jumps into the hole with his bomb.
0: <laughs> yes, the the berserker taking multiple arrows and and just like hopping in. Yeah, it's it's again like this is a part that's kind of campy, but also like adds that like kind of that urgency and and that severity to the conflict that I really like one, one place in this uh, whole thing where, where I take umbrage and, and maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't is the level of import granted to Haldir as part of this conflict. Mm. Now I, I know that he's certainly a more substantial character, like in the extended version of fellowship. And maybe when they were cutting this, you know, like they, didn't know how much or or how little of that they were going to keep in and had sort of built built this conflict around him mattering. But to a layman, to to someone watching these films, like you could I, I think you could be forgiven for having even forgot who he was, given <laughs> given how little he has to do in in fellowship. Like he has one line in fellowship. And <laughs> and they give him like the very dramatic, like slow motion, like acts in the back, like the the kind of like, you know, chorus or the 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 female vocals, that kind of like Enya moment that they do in like, <laughs> you know, a lot of like Ridley Scott movies where his his passing is given like a ton of import. It's very important to us and and we're supposed to care a lot. And ultimately it's like yeah, I don't know about this.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. I agree. I, I think that the Haldir is He's a very minor character, um, you know, and isn't really like in the grand scheme of things, isn't really that important. I think that what, if I were being fair, um, which I, I have no compunction to be, <laughs> but if I were being fair, I would say that what they're trying to, uh, sort of hammer home with that scene, uh, and obviously they're, they're trying to, uh, they they say so directly in the text that they're trying to remind you of that uh prologue and fellowship right the the last alliance, right so there was once an alliance between men and elves uh here we are again to mm-hmm. you know sort of uh, honor that the memory of that or what have you right it's just you know it's it's a cool scene you know they the 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 elven archers just you know about not about face but they turn you know Uh, turn left and it's, it's a cool scene and whatnot. But I suppose that what we're supposed to think while Haldir's like uh, being called to retreat uh, and uh, actually dies as a result um, is to think back on the fact that Elrond is trying to convince Arwen to return and live forever. And that all of the elves that were there, that when he looks around, he sees so many elves that he probably knew for, you know, who knows how long. Thousands, perhaps, you know, perhaps thousands of years uh, are all dead in the dirt. And now he's going to join them. Um, And we're supposed to think that that's somehow tragic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know. It doesn't really work um, for me. And so I do agree with you in, in, in that it's almost funny, (laughs) really it's, (laughs) it's taken so seriously and he's such a minor character. Um, it, it almost makes me feel a little sad that I find it almost funny, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah, no, but, but I mean, it, it definitely feels kind of like cliche and, and sort of like, uh, sort of ham fisted in there a little bit in terms of like trying to elicit an emotional response or or give it, you know, more more dramatic flair than I think it should be entitled to. But, you know, yeah. it's 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 a minor point and it's a minor grievance in, in what is otherwise like a, a substantial portion of this film. And I think that they do a great job with it. I was this is this is, you know, really riveting and and I think that uh you know, some of my qualms with with this one aside, and and I know, Carlo, you know, like you said that coming back to this one after having read the book, it felt a little bit, a little bit more stale. I actually think that, and again, I I, I haven't seen Return of the King in a minute, so maybe I'll change my tune, uh, once we once we record on that one. But I, I used to think that The Fellowship was the best movie and also the one I've seen the most. But rewatching it this time, I you know told Carly multiple times, I was like, I think that this one might be, the best. Of the films just in terms of of how succinctly it's able to like uh go about introducing a, t- a ton of exposition and a lot of new characters and giving you just enough to like care about it uh explaining some very like complex situations and, and plot details and also just like i don't know kind of kind of uh, putting all of that together into like a, a, a runtime that works and into like a narrative structure that doesn't ever feel like it uh, it's, it's leaning to, to one way or another with that exception again, of that kind of like dip in the second act that we mentioned already. But yeah. I yeah. think overall, like it's, it's the one that feels, feels the, the, the strongest in, in that front.
1: I'll agree. I mean, honestly, it's, it's got a lot of wheels turning. It manages to keep them turning. Um, it, it never really, uh, drops, you know, it, it, none of them ever stop. <laughs> and even though we may have some minor quibbles here and there regarding, you know, how they did this or how they did that, I think overall it works. Um, and, and, you know, I have to, even though, uh, I am somewhat underwhelmed, uh, with this rewatch, um, I, I do have to give them that, you know, they, 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 they achieved what they meant to, and that's, given the, the amount of ambition that, there, that was behind this, I, I don't think that that's a small thing. So, uh, but yeah, uh, I think that that's, that's all I have
0: to talk about in The Two Towers. Likewise. Um, that's, that's, that's a lot. We, I think we covered a, a, a significant uh, amount of ground in this one. Oh yeah, much like the movie itself. Um, so, uh, Aaron,
1: talk to me about what. Where can people find you
0: and your work? Yes, absolutely. I am one half of a '90s movie podcast called Hit Factory. Um, we are absolutely tapping into, uh, you know, and marketing ourselves on on the backs of a lot of nostalgia for the era. But what you'll find very quickly when you listen to the show is that we are not actually looking back at this moment in time with uh kind of like rosy colored uh lenses here we're actually interrogating it you know and and the ways in which this this era was was sort of the uh the apex of like neoliberal thought that's still pervasive and poisons a lot of our culture in the modern era um, so we look at that through the context of, of the works of, of Hollywood and, and other, uh, you know, film industries of that time period. And uh, yeah, we, we just investigate like a, a new movie every week and, and always have something fun to talk about it. Uh, usually coming at it from a leftist perspective and contextualizing it and, and uh, always find new and interesting things to to talk about with, with wonderful guests, including yourself, Carlo. Um, thank you yes you you can listen to us really anywhere you find your, your podcast you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod and uh, subscribe to us on Patreon as well
1: yeah um, and folks uh, Aaron and Carly just unlocked uh, their episode on The Matrix uh, the other day go give it a listen it's a really good episode uh, And if you like that one go hit them up at uh, what is it patreon.com uh, slash Hit Factory Pod that's the one you got it all right well thanks again aaron uh for talking about the two towers and uh i'm sorry that carly was not around so we could finally tell her which two towers uh the movie was talking about
0: (laughs) it remains a mystery the two towers remain elusive
1: (laughs) it will remain a mystery uh all right folks well thanks again for listening in and uh we'll catch you next time on podside